0: Um, today we are studying through the book of Ezra, and as we get into the book of Ezra, um, you're going to see there's really there's really two parts to the book. They're, they're going to rebuild the temple in the first half of the book. They're going to reform the people and have a revival in the second half of the book. Um, Ezra is really packaged together with Nehemiah. The two books really are one book. It's not until about 1500 that there's any Hebrew copies of Ezra and Nehemiah that aren't together. They they go together. I'm going to show you that structure in just a little bit. Um, But the thing that also happens in Ezra and Nehemiah is that there is a real clear anchoring of these stories in ancient history. A lot of ancient kings are going to be mentioned, of whom we know a lot about because of their own records that they left behind, and because of archaeology. And so, historically, the dating of these post-exilic prophets becomes way more specific. We can work out the dates of the other things. It takes a lot more work. This is really easy, because when it says in the third reign of Artaxerxes, we know who Artaxerxes is. We know when he started to reign. We can figure those dates out pretty easily. And so, there are a number of these kings who are going to appear in the Bible— um, who are historically real people. Now, just so there's no confusion, I want to start off with a little bit of a quiz today, okay? A quiz with ancient people, okay? On the screen, you have a picture of an ancient Persian king named Darius. You also have a picture of a contemporary music star named Darius Rucker. Darius and Darius, different people, okay? I want to, how many of you feel like maybe the Persian king is on the left, okay? How many of you, the guy on the right, um, Hootie and the Blowfish, cracked rear view, anybody have it? Oh my gosh, mowing the lawn with cracked rear view, blasting in uh, <laughs> my Walkman, Kate. <cape. laughs> unbelievable. Cracked rear view. Oh, my gosh. Cassette tape, by the way. Um, okay. Darius Rucker. Wagon wheel. Oh, my gosh. Wagon wheel. Geez. Um, he's not the guy. It's not Darius. It's Darius the first, Darius the second. Um, Xerxes, Artaxerxes. Um, th- these are the guys who we're going to talk about. Let me give this a little bit of a setting, okay? Real quickly. Um, there are some historical books in the Old Testament that are written from the Deuteronomistic perspective. They're kind of harsh. They're they're really showing the failure of the nation. Um, They go back to the contract that the people of Israel enter into with God in the book of Deuteronomy. Before they they go into the land, they, they get into this contract, and they say, we'll be faithful to you And in the Deuteronomistic history, we find out how faithful they were or were not. In what we're looking at now, the chronicler's history, we get a a very different view. It's not so harsh, it's way more hopeful. Um, It is presenting the faithfulness of God, and we saw last week that first and second Chronicles really retells the whole story, but from a hopeful perspective that leaves out a lot of the, the failures and the sins and, and the wanderings. It basically just says, you know, God was doing enough to keep his people alive and keep them worshiping him until their failure resulted in um, them being taken away captive. But we noticed at the end of Second Chronicles, the last thing that happens is they're allowed to come back. Um, what we're going to see in Ezra, Nehemiah, and then we'll look at Esther, which fits in between a section in Ezra, what, what we're going to see is the people who have come back and God's faithfulness to them. Here's the book of Ezra, okay? The book of Ezra has a character that not many people are really familiar with um, because the book is divided into two halves. The first half of the book is a return under a guy named Sheshbazar. And his friend Zerubbabel, when they get back, is going to rebuild the temple. So there's going to be one return in which they come back, rebuild the temple. That's going to be a a little bit of a herky-jerky thing because they're going to get back. They're going to start with the altar of burnt offerings. They're going to lay the foundation. And then there's going to be a little bit of opposition. And um, they're going to stop building with just the foundation and the altar built. Um, What we'll see is during that time, Haggai and Zechariah prophesy, motivate the people. They finish and complete the building of the the temple. Then there's a a gap of about 59 years, okay? And after that, there's a second return when Ezra comes back, the guy who we know wrote the book. Now, he doesn't show up until halfway through the book, but he's going to show up with a large group of people who are going to return. He's a priest and a scholar and a pastor, and he's going to lead a revival when all the people get back. Now, Ezra's going to show up in Nehemiah as well, because Ezra and Nehemiah really are packaged together. Um, and, and so these, this book of Ezra and Nehemiah is going to have a number of things that all fit together. Um, but I want to start by saying there are three returns. Zerubbabel to build the temple. Ezra's going to come back with the people Nehemiah that we'll look back, look at the next time I'm, I'm teaching, we're going to see Nehemiah who's going to um, rebuild the walls. So Zerubbabel, temple, Ezra, people, Nehemiah, walls. Three returns that take place, and they're all historically easy to date. In Ezra, we're just getting the first two. We're just getting temple and people, okay? So that's what's going on. Here's what Danny Hayes says. The book of Ezra teaches us that God is sovereign and in control even though we don't always see his direct hand in things. By the way, have you heard that message before? Isn't that the message you keep hearing? You know the reason you need to hear that message again and again? The reason it's the message of so many things is because we need to know in our lives often we don't see God's hand but he is still sovereign. Often God works slowly it seems to us and behind the scenes but he has his plans and he moves his program along according to his timing and not ours. Our job is to trust in him and to continue to worship him. I mean, this, this is the, this, the repeated message of these narrative passages. God is in control. He's moving his plan forward that is ultimately going to result in Jesus. And for us, it's ultimately going to result in the return of Christ as we are doing the work of making disciples of all nations. He's going to accomplish that. It may be slow. It, it may not look like it's moving, but it's always moving. He goes on to say this too. Related to this is the reality that carrying out God's will and furthering his kingdom on earth can be frustrating and challenging. This was true for Israel's leaders in the book of Ezra and is true for us today. Leaders must cling to God's word and his promises. Indeed, Ezra reminds us how important the word of God is and how important it is that we know and, we know and understand God's word especially when we undertake difficult and challenging tasks. God is sovereign. He's moving his plan along. He wants to use us, but there's often opposition. What we're going to see in this book is there's opposition from outside, but also opposition from our own apathy. Sometimes we just become so apathetic to God's plan that we get focused on our own stuff. And that's what is going to happen in this book is it's going to address those things as these people come back to rebuild a temple so that worship can be central. But then they're going to recognize we can't just go through the motions. Our lives have to be aligned with God's purposes. Bruce Wilkinson says it this way, Ezra continues the Old Testament narrative of Second Chronicles by showing how God fulfilled his promise to return his people to the land of promise after 70 years of exile. Ezra relates that the story of the two returns from Babylon, the first led by Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple, Ezra 1-6, through and the second under the leadership of Ezra to rebuild the spiritual condition of the people, Ezra 7-11, through and then sandwiched between these two accounts is a gap of nearly six decades during which Esther lives and rules as queen in Persia. I'm just setting this up. The first half of Ezra, Zerubbabel's building a temple. The second half, Ezra's leading a revival, There's a gap of about 60 years, it's 59 years, a gap in between, and it's during that time that back in Persia, Esther is still reigning. The original readers of this book are the people who have come back from the exile. If you'll remember, at the end of 2 Chronicles, that talks about the whole history of Israel, starts back with Adam and builds Adam through Abraham and Abraham up to David. It gives you the exploits of David and the good things that he did, overlooking some of the bad things he did. It tells you about the good things he did, um, expanding and solidifying the nation, Um, It it tells you about his preparations for the temple that Solomon is going to build and how he put the the choirs together and he organized all of the hymn book and those kind of things. Uh, Then after he dies, Solomon is going to take over. Solomon's going to build this temple. And and Solomon did some other things, but really the central story of Solomon is his preparations for building the temple, building the temple, and then dedicating the temple. Um, Then we're going to see the story in Chronicles of the southern nation, and how um, they're fairly unfaithful, although there are some kings who lead some good revivals, um, Hezekiah and Josiah in particular. But at the end of the book, they're unfaithful enough that they go off into captivity. Now, at the very end of the book, we saw last week, these are the last verses of 2 Chronicles. Now, in the first year of King Cyrus, king of Persia, we know when that was, "...that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and he put it in writing." That's the end of Second Chronicles. It's, it ends with, okay, they were away, but now Cyrus says they can come home. Here's the very first verse of Ezra, Ezra 1.1. "...in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm, and also put it in writing." it's the same verse, okay? Second Chronicles links with Ezra to say, okay, these two things come together to fulfill the story. Now that they're back, what is going to happen? So let's start working through who's writing, when is he writing, where are the people who are reading this, and why is this book together put together? Who composed Ezra? Well, using eyewitness accounts and historical records, including official documents from other countries. I'm going to pause for a minute. Including official documents from other countries means this. When some of the opposition starts to uh, show up in terms of building the temple, um, other nations, the local nations, they say, hey, we don't want them to resettle and build this center that, that draws them together. We don't want it to happen. And they start protesting. Eventually, some people are going to go back, and they're going to get documents from the Persian kings back in Persia. They're going to bring them back, and those documents are going to be read in the Book of Ezra. And when they're in the Book of Ezra, they're written out in Aramaic. It's not written out in Hebrew. It's written in Aramaic because this is the literal official document that gets brought back, and they're reading it in the dialogue of the king in the in the language of the king who wrote it. So these international documents, and the writer, possibly Ezra himself, for both Ezra Ezra and Nehemiah, he's around during this whole period, he wrote down a historical account of the return and rebuilding of the temple, along with the opposition from other countries, he talks about that, and apathy from within the nation that threatened the future of the covenant community. He's a member of this post-exilic community who's looking around and saying, God has been faithful, what are we going to do now? There's still opposition And the people aren't always right. The people haven't really straightened up their act. When did all this happen? Well, like I've told you, there's some specific things we can date here. The events covered in the first half of Ezra take place during the reigns of the Persian kings Cyrus, Cambyses, and Darius I. We know exactly when these things are. While the second half of the book takes place during the reign of Artaxerxes. These kings are mentioned in the text, and we know when they reigned, and when it says in the first reign of... Cyrus, we know when that is, um, and, and so all of these things are very easy for us to date and put together. When is all this going on? As I've showed you before, First and Second Chronicles is retelling the whole story that was told back in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, that talks about the United Kingdom under Saul, David, and Solomon, then that division of the kingdom into the north and the south. And in the south, that kingdom is going to last for longer than in the north because the Assyrians are going to wipe out the northern kingdom. The Babylonians are going to take captive the southern kingdom. So let's zero in on this a little bit. And what I'm going to show you is this. Um, This Babylonian captivity is going to last 70 years. I'm going to show you where that's prophesied and why why it's 70 years, why they know that, that they're ready to come back after the 70 years, when they do come back, end of 2 Chronicles, beginning of Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah are going to write, and their audience is this restored people, the people who have come back. And they're writing to tell, here's the events that have taken place, and we need to make sure we're still aligning with God. God is faithful. He's moving his story on, but are we going to be faithful to worship him, to obey him, Again, I mentioned last week, idolatry doesn't seem to be an issue, and there's, there's something they do in, in the book of Ezra to kind of ensure that, that idolatry doesn't become an issue. But they're still going to have this issue of, are you just going through the motions, and and is your life really aligned with the purposes of God? I've got another ch- chart out at the Connection Center, other than uh, the chart on my book, that it, on, on the book of Ezra, um, that, that describes the post-exilic period. I, I give a big narrative, actually it's a short narrative for a long period, um, up the top of that, and then there's some columns there with the events, the dates they took place, the references in Scripture. There's a map that shows you the returns of that post-exilic period. But what I want to highlight here is, first of all, there's three returns. Zerubbabel's going to come back, and he's going to build the temple. Ezra's going to come back. He's going to lead a, a reform of the people, and Nehemiah is going to come back, and he's going to rebuild the walls. Now, there are gaps in between there. Um, between Zerubbabel and Ezra there's about 59 years uh, there's a there's a long period of uh, between there there's another um, 12 years between the end of Ezra and when Nehemiah shows up because ne- Ezra's going to be a part of this Nehemiah story um, I, I want to highlight one other thing for you if you look down there there's the book of Esther Esther fits in between when Zerubbabel builds the temple and Ezra comes back to reform the people All of that fits in this chronology part right there in the middle. So right in the middle of this flow of Ezra and Nehemiah nicely flowing along, what we're going to have to do is come back and go, oh yeah, back in between the first and second returns, three returns, Zerubbabel temple, Ezra, people, Nehemiah, walls, in between Zerubbabel and Ezra, that's when Esther's reigning as queen in Persia. Um, So when was Ezra composed? The book of Ezra and Nehemiah, I'm going to put them back together here for a minute, was composed during the post-exilic period after the exiles had returned from Babylon, providing them hope and perspective for the future. Um, one of the names, one of the names in a genealogy that's mentioned in the book is, is a guy from way after, from slightly after Nehemiah's time. So Nehemiah has probably built the walls when these guys are reading this. They provide a record of the faithfulness of God to preserve the chosen nation in spite of their continued failure to fully keep the commandments of the covenant. Well, where were they? Well, you've seen on maps again and again. The original audience is now living back in the land of Israel, still under the rule of the Persians, and wondering what their future entailed. How should they live in these new circumstances? And was there any hope for the future? We've come back, God's been faithful. Um, But we're still under the hand of the Persians, and we don't have a king. And it's not clearly stated, they don't have the Ark of the Covenant either. Um, And and so their question is what they're going to do. They're coming back under these three returns. I've got them written here. This map is on one of the handouts out there. Um, In 538, Zerubbabel comes back to build the temple. Um, He starts it in 536. They finish it after a delay in 515. Ezra's going to come back in 458. Nehemiah is going to come back in 444. Um, All of this is easy to date because of the the rulers who are connected with it. So how is this all put together? Well, if I put Ezra and Nehemiah together, it's another one of our chiasms that shows this reversal. Um, It starts with Zerubbabel and this list of people who come back. Then he builds the temple in the midst of opposition. Ezra comes back to lead a reform. They purify the people. Then Nehemiah comes back, he builds the walls in the midst of opposition, and then there's another list of the people who came back. In the middle of all of that, the thing that turns it around is the purification of the people. They come back, they build temple, they build walls, but the central thing that happens is they align themselves. So when you look at the book, again, you've seen the book works like this. There's a return, they build the temple, there's a return, they have a revival. Um, what I want you to see and pay attention to is one little section here, green circle. Oh my gosh, all the red circles are gone. This is a green circle. This is a different kind of a circle, okay? There are two passages in chapter 4, one verse, and then a smaller section that are wacky out of place because they mention kings who are after this period of time. They mention kings who are during the period of rebuilding the walls. These kings are 100 years later. And so if you're reading along and you get to this section, it almost seems like has Ezra gotten confused about who's on the throne? No, here's what's going on with Ezra. Ezra's talking about the opposition to them building the temple that brought the temple to a lack of conclusion for about 20 years. No one's working on it. And as he's saying, the people were opposed to us, his mind goes, and this doesn't stop, man. This continued way back even into the time of Nehemiah. And he gives you these two examples that jump way forward to the time of Nehemiah. And then he comes back, and what he's going to do is he's going to say, um, yes, there was opposition, but we finished the job. And one of the big reasons they finished the job, he's going to highlight, is the ministry of Haggai and Zechariah. Haggai and Zechariah are going to preach. When the the opposition begins and the people stop building the temple, all they've got is the altar and the foundation built. There's opposition. They stop. They get distracted. They start building their own houses. And Haggai says, hey, guys, you finished your houses. You're living in luxury now, and and the temple is not finished. Come on, finish the temple. And Zechariah says, guys, you're building the temple for, for Messiah? Let me tell you how glorious this Messiah is. And for 12 chapters, he presents the glory of Messiah and his ultimate rule on earth. It's a very prophetic book, but it's all to show the Messiah deserves you to finish this temple. Again, I've highlighted that there's a 22-year period at the beginning of the book. The The first seven chapters, the first six chapters, take 22 years. Um, they start building. There's 22, there's, they build for about a year, a 20 year gap. They build for about a year. They finish the temple. The second half of the book, after a 59 year gap between Zerubbabel and Ezra, when Esther's queen in Persia, the second half of the book only takes one year. Uh, in fact, it may be way shorter than one year for this revival to all take place. Now, in order to understand what's really going on, I've got to take you back to the Palestinian covenant. If you'll remember in Deuteronomy, um, the nation enters into a covenant with God where he pledges to be faithful to them and they pledge to be faithful to, to God. That covenant and the stipulations of it are presented in Deuteronomy 30 to 32. A smaller version of that is in Leviticus chapter 26. The Palestinian covenant says this God's people will be blessed for their obedience, disciplined for their disobedience, and restored when they repent because God is faithful to his people. Now we've seen a lot of discipline for their disobedience, okay? Now we're here at this section of they're being restored because they repent. Um, Here's what the passage is going to tell us confession of sins results in forgiveness and restoration. By the way, this is not just an Old Testament historical thing. This is true for us. Confession of sin results in forgiveness and restoration. But if they will confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors, their unfaithfulness and their hostility toward me, which made me hostile toward them so that I sent them into the land of their enemies, then when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled, and they pay for their sins, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land, I'll restore them to the land. If they'll just confess their sins, and that is what they do. There's a lot of confession in Daniel, there's a lot of confession in Ezra, there's a lot of confession in Nehemiah. God says, I'll restore you He says this, For the land will be deserted by them and will enjoy its Sabbaths while it lays desolate without them. They will pay for their sins because they rejected my laws and abhorred my decrees. They were gone and they didn't observe the Sabbaths. Lots of Sabbaths they weren't observing. But one in particular is the Sabbath year. Every, Every... Seven years, they were supposed to let the land lay fallow, not plant anything that year. Anything that came up naturally was fine. They just couldn't plant and harvest their, their crops normally. Any fruit that grew, they could, they could grow. They needed to set things aside during the sixth year and, and trust God that he would provide enough for them during the sixth year and enough stuff that came up naturally. They were supposed to work together during that, that Sabbath year and and not plant and harvest anything. Now, during the 470 years that they were living in the land, do you know how many times they observed that Sabbath year? Zero. In 470 years, they skipped the Sabbath year 70 times. And God says here, the land will get its Sabbath. And in fact, Jeremiah says this, the whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Remember at the end of 2 Chronicles, the beginning of Ezra, that according to the prophecy of Jeremiah, they're being sent back because their 70 years were up. This is why these guys like Ezra and uh, Nehemiah and Daniel, it's why they know, let's start praying and confessing our sins because we're getting ready to go back. We also find out that God's going to leave a remnant. There's always a remnant. Yet in spite of this, When they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them or abhor them so as to destroy them completely, breaking my covenant with them. I am the Lord their God. I'm not going to destroy them completely. There's always going to be a faithful group who's serving me. You're not alone in this. In your serving the Lord, opposition, apathy, whatever's going on in your life, you're not alone. There's always a remnant who is serving the Lord. And God's going to be faithful. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant with their ancestors, whom I brought out of Egypt in the sight of the nations to be their God. I am the Lord. These are the decrees, the laws, and the regulations that the Lord established at Mount Sinai between himself and the Israelites through Moses. God said, I'll be faithful. I'm going to discipline you. You're going to be away for seventy years. If you repent, you can come back. And they all are repenting and confessing their sins. In Daniel and Ezra and Nehemiah, a lot of repentance and confession of sins. Now, We've talked about the two parts of the book. Zerubbabel comes back to build the temple, and Ezra comes back and leads a reform of the people. We're going to talk about those details here for just a minute. This is Zerubbabel's temple. This is a drawing of the temple. Um, They come back, and initially, they just build that altar of sacrifice that's there in the front, and they lay the foundation. When they lay the foundation, the building's not built yet. When they lay the foundation, there's a celebration. Now, unfortunately, the opposition arises because they say, oh my gosh, they've got the foundation laid. The other nations oppose them, and they stop building for 20 years. But when they laid the foundation, there's a celebration. But here's what Ezra tells us. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. Some of the young people, they're like, all right, we got the foundation made. Good, we're we're making good progress. The older people who had seen it when they were children, when they saw the foundations of the temple, they started crying because they saw the other one. Let me give you a picture of the difference. Here's the completed thing. They only had the foundation laid. Here's the completed Zerubbabel's temple. Here's Solomon's temple. The part that you see as Zerubbabel's temple is just that back section that has the really high part on it, that's elaborate and and probably Solomon's going overboard, m- making it too tall. God never told him to make it that tall. He makes it that tall. Motives are mixed. Um, but but can you see? This is just the back part of it. This is why the people who had seen it before are just like, oh my gosh, what is what is going on here? The more significant thing is this. Zerubbabel's temple, we are never told that the Spirit of God goes in it. The Shekinah glory of God was leading the Israelites um, out of Egypt through the wilderness. When they built the tabernacle, the tent that's the mobile worship place, when they built that, the Shekinah glory went into the tent. When Solomon built the temple, there's a clear story where uh, the The glory goes out of the tabernacle and moves to the temple during the um, immorality of the southern kingdom, Ezekiel in ezekiel seven through ten, perhaps for me one of the saddest stories in all of the Bible, talks about the glory of God leaving the temple. they had so desecrated it they had so missed the mark of what it meant to worship God that literally the glory of God left from the Holy of Holies, moved to the east part of the building, moved to the east part of the courtyard, moved to the east part of the city, and then went off to the east. And it never comes back, in my mind, until Jesus comes back. And when Jesus is born, there's a light that follows him. I'm not so sure that's not the Shekinah glory. That's a Christmas message. The sad thing about this building is not that it's not big enough, It's that it doesn't have the presence of God. And this, when it gets remodeled by Herod into a big thing, when it's conquered by the Romans in 70 AD, when they conquer it inside, there's no Ark of the Covenant. Um, It was probably melted down by the Babylonians. Let me highlight again. Haggai and Zechariah prophesy during this time. This is Ezra 6, okay? Ezra 6.14 says, So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper. This is after they had met some opposition. They stopped 20 years. They continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, a descendant of Iddo. They finished building the temple according to the command of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, kings of Persia. They start building, lay the foundation, the altar up front. 20 years, Haggai, Zechariah jump in. They say, guys, we got to finish. you got your houses done. Let's finish. The glory of God in Zechariah, it's worthy. Let's, let's build this thing. And so they finish this building. And it becomes central to their worship. That's the first half of the book. In the second half of the book we meet this man named Ezra. Here's the description of him. Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel had given. The king had granted him everything he asked for, for the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. Here is a a a man blessed by God who has studied the scripture and we're going to see him teaching the scriptures throughout Ezra and Nehemiah. He's reading the scriptures, probably teaching them locally. In Nehemiah, he's going to stand up and, and read the scriptures publicly and lead a huge revival in Nehemiah. But what happens in the book of Ezra is Ezra is leading some people back to the land. Um, he's teaching the law locally, and some of the people come to him and say, Hey, we've got a problem here. Um, <laughs> Once we've gotten back, some of the people have intermarried with the local people. They've intermarried with the Amorites and the Ammonites and the Moabites. And what's going to happen here at the very end of the book is there's going to be um, not by the suggestion of Ezra, but the people are going to say we messed up, and and we understand that we shouldn't have married these people from the land because not because of racial or ethnic things. This is not racial or ethnic. This is spiritual. They understand these people could lead us away into idol worship, and we don't want to do that anymore. We know we were exiled because of our idolatry. We don't want that to happen anymore, so we need to rectify these things with these wives that we've married. And and they say, we need to, we need to put them away. We, we need to divorce them. It's a, it's a tricky passage at the end of this book. Um, I want to say, first of all, this is not racial or ethnic. Um, This is spiritual. And God had warned them about this back in Exodus chapter 34. Here's what God says. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land, for for, for when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you and you will eat their sacrifices. They'll say, come on over, participate with us. And when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons, and those daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, they will lead your sons to do the same. What they're hearing here is just like Solomon. And we don't want any more of that. And this is a very difficult thing. Now, if any of them had returned to the Lord previously, like if they were already Yahweh, like Ruth, um, or like Rahab, um, who are the people of the land but who are really Yahwehs? They get to be a part of the covenant community. They even get to be in the genealogy of Christ. But in this situation, um, it's really tentative to go, you're married and now we're going to tell you you have to get a divorce unless you come to Christ? Ah, uh, No, they're going to put them all away. And they're going to renew their commitment to live as the Lord wanted them to live. Bob Chisholm says this, the returning exiles encountered opposition for nearly a century But through the instrumentality of the Lord's prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, three different Persian rulers, Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, their official documents show their support of the work. And Ezra the priest, the temple was finally rebuilt and temple worship instituted. Ezra was very much aware that the Lord was responsible for the success of the community. He recognized that the Lord had moved the heart of King Artaxerxes. Once more, the theme of the Lord's sovereignty over human rulers emerges. The restoration of the exiles truly was the work of God, and for that reason, promised to be successful. So what's the message of this book? <laughs> what are we saying? Here's how I summarize it on the chart that's out at the Connection Center. The author, perhaps Ezra, for both Ezra and Nehemiah, recorded two returns from exile to the promised land under Sheshbazzar and Zerubbabel, and then under Ezra, as the Lord guided and protected them and gave them favor in the eyes of international leaders. It's like you're a nation again. Look, these international leaders are supporting you. First, the rebuilding of the temple and reestablishing worship under Zerubbabel and the restoring, uh, restoring the people to covenant faithfulness under Ezra fulfilling the sovereign promise of the Lord so that the remnant of returnees, those people who are reading, will continue in temple worship and be careful to keep the covenant in the midst of opposition and pain. No matter what opposition you, you're facing, finish what God asks you to do. And don't let your apathy stop you from finishing what God is asking you to do. So what do we do with this? I mean, where, where, where do you go? Let me uh, get out of this, do this, and skip a couple slides what should we believe? Here's what we should believe. The Lord can be trusted to forgive and restore, because that's what he does. They were away in Babylon, then in Persia for 70 years, but God forgave and he restored them. We can count on that. When they were in the land, when they confessed their sins and repented, God forgave them and restored them. We also see that worship has to be central to everything we do. The first thing they do when they get back to the land is they build the altar of sacrifice so they can start making sacrifices. We also see that true worship is not just going through the motions, it results in obedient living, making the right choices about who you marry, who you hang out with. By the way, there's even a New Testament principle that says very clearly, believers should not marry unbelievers. I can't tell you how many times I've seen, oh, this is going to be okay, I'll have such a positive influence on them, but... Sunday morning, who wants to be here listening to me if you don't have to? If the Spirit's not leading you here, my guess is you're on a boat. And if you've got an unbeliever who's your spouse, you're going to be on a boat. True worship results in obedient living, and confession and repentance are normal parts of the Christian life. Folks, confession and repentance are normal parts of the Christian life because we don't have our acts together. These these books are showing us again and again. People don't have their acts together. We don't have our acts together. Confession and repentance are a part of the normal Christian life. And rest in God's grace and goodness. Examine your life for inconsistencies in your walk with the Lord. You're here. I get it. You're worshiping. But is there anything in your life that's inconsistent with a person who's sitting here worshiping the Lord, singing these songs? And if there is, make confession, repentance, and worship a central part of your life. Confess. Repent. Worship. You're going to get an opportunity to do that very clearly today. Where does this fit? It's a continuation of the story of God's faithfulness after his people's failure. It's a narrative that acknowledges the reality of opposition to God's work and plans in our lives. It's going to be hard to follow him. The Bible's never, never um, trying to mute that message. It's going to be hard to follow him, but it's an example of the central place of timely confession and acknowledgement of sin. So what I have for you Um, as next steps. Examine your life for inconsistencies in your walk and confess them. Examine your life. You're worshiping. Temple's been rebuilt. You're here. Um, After COVID, we're now worshiping. (laughs) What's inconsistent in your life? What doesn't match up with what God's people should look like? Confess it. Turn from it repent and commit to following christ closely in community i'm going to highlight that in community because it's it's in that community that that if you really build it people will be honest and tell you about the things you need to be doing in your life and you need to be sharing with those community members so that there's some accountability in the middle of all of that um this morning we're going to remember what christ has done for us i I mentioned uh, the first thing that they did um was that they built the altar. <laughs> That's the very first. They didn't build tall gold, anything. They built an altar. Because at the center of everything they're doing is remembering the sacrifices. Because those sacrifices allowed them to stay in communion with God. We're going to remember those sacri- that sacrifice that Christ made for us, the fulfillment of all of those sacrifices. Would you stand? I'm going to pray. Father, help us to remember well all that you've done for us. Thank you for your faithfulness to us over millennia. Father, in the specifics of the story of Ezra, you are faithful. In the specifics of every person in this room, you're faithful. Might we be reminded of your faithfulness? As we take this reminder that at the center of our lives is a sacrifice that was made for us a sacrifice made by Christ that was once for all. Amen.